curious, unusual, and opaque areas of wellness, well-being, and intuitive business with a sense of humor and a little bit of an attitude. I'm Michelle Palazon, your host and the head witch in charge at Holisticism, and I'm so excited for today's podcast episode and guest. It's going to be so good. But before I get into that, I just want to remind you, we're running a challenge this month, or not a challenge, <laughs> it's a giveaway. Through the month of May, we are giving one lucky winner a private Akashic Records reading with me. So the way to enter is you go ahead and you give us a review, take a screenshot of it, and then send it to the text number in our show notes. And that will automatically enter you to win a one-on-one Akashic Records reading with me. I'm a certified Akashic Records reader. (laughs) Not that you need to be certified to read people's records, but I've been doing this for a while. I've had some really amazing teachers and had lots and lots of experience. It's so fun for me and really such a delight and not something that I offer people who are not my students directly. And even my students have a hard time pinning me down. These are special occasion situations, but really excited to be able to offer that to you. So if you want to enter and win, the way to do that is to go ahead and review and rate and subscribe and then take a screenshot and send it to us at at the text line. So may the luckiest person win. And with that, I'm so, I'm so pumped about today's episode because I got introduced to Marika Clymer through one of our amazing North Noters, I need to go back into the hub and check out who it was, but the North Node is our private members community for capitalism critical intuitive entrepreneurs who really want to straddle the threshold of the being in the business world and also being mystical witches. (laughs) And we cover, you know, so sort of both sides of the coin inside that community. Doors open again in June, on June 20th on the summer solstice. If you're curious and you want to know more about it, but inside of the community, we were talking about Reiki. We were talking about cultural appropriation and what's appropriate in terms of being a practitioner. And someone shared Marika at Moonhouse Northwest and W on Instagram, shared her account and her examination of Reiki as a woman who has Japanese ancestry. And whether it's appropriate or not for people who are white to be, you know, bestowing Reiki upon others and opening up Reiki for other people and just kind of like grappling with that. And a great conversation was had in the North Node. And I just thought it was such a fascinating topic and one that I certainly sort of wrestled with myself. I'm Reiki attuned just to the first degree. And I couldn't help but, you know, I got attuned by a relatively well-known white woman in the wellness space and she's lovely, but I couldn't help but feel a little uncomfortable using this practice that didn't feel like mine. And although energy practice is its energy, Reiki is very specific and energy healing can be non-specific, but Reiki is very specific and has a very specific lineage. And the lineage is so like, it's such an important sticking point of at least my education in Reiki. So I have never practiced Reiki as a practitioner just because it never really, I couldn't wrap my head around it. And it, it didn't call to me so much to really dive deep into it. And I've just really admired watching Marika 
on Instagram sort of ask good questions of herself and of her community and open up dialogue around what is appropriate. What is cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation? At what point are do we all can we acknowledge that many of our cultures have intersection? You know, we all use herbs. We Many of us have some sort of witchcraft or spell work. Many of us have some sort of energy healing practice. Many of us have like a, even a manifestation practice, right? And when is it inappropriate? When is it that we are taking advantage of that and we're appropriating what isn't ours? And I just, I knew that Marika was going to be really wise and thoughtful and really smart. (laughs) And I was still blown away by the conversation that she was able to facilitate (laughs) with me at like nine in the morning. She's a powerhouse and I'm so lucky that I got to sit with her. And I really hope that you enjoy this episode and that you take something away from it. I'm not sure if we really come to a conclusion one way or another, but I do think it's important to just bring up these conversations, right? And also to, to not always come down on one one side of the line to be open to learning more and relating more and feeling more and and maybe even changing our minds over time around what we thought was right what we thought was correct what we thought was in alignment maybe it isn't <laughs> and i think this is something that we explore a lot in the north node and we grapple with as people that are capitalism critical is it possible to completely divest from capitalism and be a business owner And while there are so many aspects of capitalism that are completely broken and oppressive, there are other aspects that I would argue we need because we don't really have another system yet. And capitalism doesn't have to be an oppressive structure system. It can be disentangled from what it has been turned into and what it's evolved into. And it's that wrestling is where growth happens and what I think keeps life interesting. If you want to just go listen to the episode, maybe fast forward like two minutes, but my partner is Jewish. And so we went through the classes for conversion for me because I'm not Jewish. And one thing that I loved was learning that to be Jewish means to be a God wrestler, one who wrestles with God. And I just love that that perspective and that philosophy on spirituality or or anything that you know you believe in, right? That you believe in with your whole heart to still wrestle with it, to still grapple with it, to not just sort of sit on the couch and put your feet up and be like, yeah, this is what I believe in. Cool. But to really make it a part of your daily practice and actually to make part of your spirituality to be wrestling with your spirituality or whatever it is that you believe in, I think that that's really cool. (laughs) Yeah, I just appreciate that Marika so clearly does that, I think. Okay, with that, I'm going to let you listen to her because she's so much much smarter than me. And I can't wait to hear what you think. Marika, welcome. I'm so excited to be talking to you. Thank you so much, Michelle. I'm very glad to be here. (laughs) We had some Zoom technical difficulties on my end, so I appreciate your grace and presence. Where are you based in the world? So I am born and raised and currently reside on occupied and unceded Duwamish land, also Mm. known as the Seattle metropolitan area. Yeah. So I have a bunch of members inside of our community, the North Node, who live on Duwamish land and who pay rent Mm -hmm. to the Duwamish. I think that's so cool. And I looked to see if there was something similar set up in on Tongva land where I live in LA and there isn't. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't believe that that wasn't 
something like it seems so natural and like such an easy and I don't know, like integrous idea. I was so surprised that it, it hadn't been set up in more places. Yeah. I mean, I think the Duwamish tribe has a very complex, like complex circumstances through which the Duwamish people have been able to maintain like cultural vibrancy since colonization. And mm. so they are actually not federally recognized as a tribe. Yeah. And they've been fighting for their sovereignty, you know, obviously for decades. They are, you know, Chief Seattle is one of the main signatories on the Treaty of Point Elliott, which was signed in the late 1890s, where the U.S. government said they were going to give all of the tribes, you know, land and other tribal resources, much like we see with other nations who receive, you know, that type of assistance. And the Duwamish tribe does not. And the last time that their sovereignty or like their self-determination was denied, it was because the U.S. government said that the Duwamish people do not exist anymore. Uh, Yeah. So, you know, I do think that, you know, the circumstances here in Seattle are very particular because normally, you know, some of our tax money goes to the Bureau of Indian Affairs Mm. to help, you know, pay for obviously not nearly enough for, you know, different nations, but because they don't have federal sovereignty, they've, you know, been moving forward with different initiatives like the Real Rent Duwamish, which is really awesome. Wow. I so appreciate how knowledgeable you are about (laughs) all of that. Yeah. I mean, I grew up here and, you know, I would say that I was really privileged to live in a household where my mother worked with the different tribes in the Puget Sound area fairly regularly. And I have like some, you know, family connections. I've always kind of been in proximity to Coast Salish peoples within my community, but then also like just the education standpoint, you know, that initiative Mm -hmm. on my behalf out of desire to, you know, just be aware of, of my responsibilities as a settler. I'm sure that this had an impact on who the person you, you are Mm -hmm the person that you are today, but did that come into your mind a lot? Sort of like your, your perspective and how you grew up and knowing you're a settler when you started entering the wellness space, did you think about that? And, or was it like something later that sort of hit you? Yeah. So I think among like BIPOC spaces and like within BIPOC perspectives, a lot of the time, and I'll speak specifically for one of my lineages, which is Japanese. You know, there is a lot of reasons for why here in the United States, the narrative around Japanese people is that, you know, we have been victimized Mm -hmm. and we have been the recipients of a lot of both structural institutional violence at the hands of the U.S. government, but then also, you know, social, social violence, uh, racial discrimination and all of that. And it really wasn't until a few years ago that I, well, really like when I started to accept like my Ainu lineage, my Ainu side, that I really started looking into more deeply the more violent aspects of Japanese history, including settler colonialism within Japan of multiple indigenous Mm. groups. And so, you know, I think a lot of the time, while it's important to acknowledge and hold space for 
the experience of trauma being, you know, immigrants or, you know, children of immigrants of Japanese people here in the United States, we also cannot let that overshadow our responsibility to acknowledge that we are also settlers on this land. And I think that goes for a lot of different people of color who, you know, come here through different circumstances. You know, a lot of people Mm -hmm. come here because they are fleeing war or poverty. A lot of the time, U.S. created, you know, destabilization in these countries that end up, you know, we have a lot of immigrants. And yes, it's important to hold space for that. But then it's also important to acknowledge our positionality within, you know, the actual communal structures here in the United States and what that means. The word settler wasn't ever really used in my household My parents are significantly older. My mother immigrated here in 1954. So Mm. yeah, less than 10 years after World War II, they're very much boomers. But so there was a lot of really, mm, while they are liberal, there are limitations to like their understanding of settler and indigenous relations. And, you know, that was something that I really had to unpack as I got older and continue to unpack specifically with my dad because he Mm. is white. Yeah. And I'm sure that that dynamic, well, there's so many dynamics there between your mother and your father, Mm -hmm. between the generational divide between, you know, the two of you and then being in this new, this new place. Is your dad from Seattle originally? Yeah. Or was he was born and raised there? (laughs) Yes, he is. (laughs) He was born and raised in Renton. That's where my mother and my grandmother ended up settling when they immigrated here as well, which is just South of Seattle. Wow. I'm just thinking about how, have you had this conversation with your mom and about like the settler mentality sort of, and, and how does she approach it? Does she, Mm. is it, I don't know, dysregulating to her or does she sort of understand? Well, to be very honest, my mother and I don't really have much of a like conversational relationship. There Mm. are a lot of reasons as to why that is, but, you know, so we haven't directly had that. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say that we, we do have conversations around it because she worked for like decades within state and county governments, specifically like within King County and Snohomish County, which are, you know, both I mean, there's so many different tribes that have kind of, you know, historically called this place home, but she worked as like a liaison between the government and the tribes. And so, yeah. And so her perspective, I would say is much more realistic and pragmatic from like a bureaucratic perspective. Like, yes, the tribes aren't getting enough of what they need. This is a structural issue, you know, she is, I would say, very, you know, progressive on that front as a result of her, you know, her privileged status within, you know, the government community. Not that she's just like this big deal, but she has worked (laughs) in like urban planning and resource management for a really long time. And yeah, so... Yeah, I definitely for a little while wanted to, if I ever went to grad school, (laughs) it would be (laughs) to like study indigenous planning and how, you know, space actually has a lot of 
expresses a lot about our power dynamics within, you know, institutions and how the Duwamish tribe, you know, having lack of space, you know, how can Seattle, regardless of whether or not the federal government recognizes them as a tribe, how could Seattle use space to actually like repatriate land to the Duwamish people in a Mm. way that, you know, recognizes them and acknowledges their self-determination as well as their rights and Seattle's responsibility to to serving their community. Wow. Mm-hmm. This is not where I thought this conversation was going to go, but I'm like so here for it. We, I live in LA by the LA River. I live in Mount Washington. It's on the east side of LA. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about the LA River? You know, the only thing that I do know is me and my son watched City of Ghosts, which is on Netflix. It's a kid's show. And they did an episode. They really talk about like the different communities that like diversity in LA and history of different communities like the black community the korean community japanese community and they did an episode that was really centered on the la river and Mm. the tongva people yeah yeah and how so so you know but that for anyone listening the la river it was basically it's this concrete basin that Mm. they've they've created to take what was this sort of thriving overflowing free Mm -hmm. water source that didn't have like necessarily one singular direct path Mm -hmm. and what we call the LA river today and to sort of channel it in one space and sort of carve it out. And it's created a boundary obviously. And also it completely destroyed any sort of, the land was so distinctive, especially for the people who lived here before there were white people here, before there were Spanish settlers and colonizers Mm -hmm. here. And it's really hard to see those boundary lines now or see those those distinctive areas Mm -hmm. because the LA river is this sort of like mm, artificial version of of what it it was. And so my partner and I talk about that a lot, but even in LA, when, when you said, you know, going back to grad school and talking about how the land creates bound, like we can create space or not Mm -hmm. choose not to create space for people Mm -hmm. in LA, the freeway system, a large reason or a large part, I would say of why it was designed the way that it is, which is overlapping and crossing. It goes through really arbitrary neighborhoods Mm -hmm. was to break up neighborhoods of marginalized people or um, non-white people basically Mm -hmm. and to separate them from white neighborhoods Mm -hmm. and yeah and we see those results we see that today it's so distinct and I'm not like obviously super into geography yet or urban planning (laughs) yet but that's something that I I just think about all the time I'm Mm -hmm. able to ride my bike through all these different neighborhoods in Los Angeles and just see them change mm-hmm. so rapidly from one street to another. That was something I thought about when I lived in New York too. Of, wow, I can go up one block and this is a completely different mm-hmm. group of people. And why is it like that? And how did this begin? And you start to recognize, oh, it's because this neighborhood was redlined yeah. or it's because yeah. they this was done on purpose. Yes. Like this is not an accident. Right. This is intentional. Find that way. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. It's mind blowing. And I start to also think about how we are creating those boundaries in digital spaces too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really cool to think about. And I would have no idea how, where that conversation <laughs> go, but yes, I really appreciate you sharing. And I think it's so important, you know, the guy who created the freeway system, who's like known as like, I don't know, the grandfather or the father of like 
urban planning and design, you know, that was the whole point. And like running them straight through, particularly specifically Black communities in Chicago, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. creating the projects. That's how mm-hmm. that started. So it's really interesting. And I think especially with the LA River, it's like, you know, the same thing that we do to the same thing that, you know, our government, uh, you know, settlers do to the environment is what they do to the people. And so what does it mean for us to take this beautiful, thriving ecosystem, this pillar of the ecosystem, the LA River, and put it in this concrete channel saying, this is the only way that we are going to allow you to exist, even if it's going to kill everything around you, even if it's going to take away your spirit, you know, the birds that rely on you, the plants that rely on you can no longer do that. You know, there's a lot to be said about how that really is a reflection of how we treat Indigenous people as well as other communities of color here in the United States. It's so true. And it's, like to even take that metaphor further, we we go down to the river often because we we live right by it. And I just, I'd never, I didn't grow up in LA. So I was like, this is so weird. Like, is this from, this is like from Greece, you know, the movie yeah. Greece. And they're like, yeah. I was like, what is this place? It's so bizarre. And it's like our, it's like nature in LA for a lot of people. Yeah. And it's, actually really incredible. We've been going every weekend since the pandemic started to see how much life there is in the river Mm. now, how life, like it finds a way, you know, nature finds a way. And it's now the inside, the interior of this (laughs) weird concrete Mm -hmm. basin is like lush. There are there are trees growing inside of it. Mm. There's animals. There's people living there. Unfortunately, we mm. have a really bad houseless problem in LA yeah. and it's really sad. It's also really dangerous for them to be living there, for people to, to live there because of flash floods. But just to like, it is full on this weird oasis in the middle of concrete. And I have such mixed feelings about it. Like on the one hand, I'm like, wow, life is amazing. On the other hand, I'm like, couldn't they just have kept it? (laughs) Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I could talk about this stuff all day long (laughs) because it, it it truly is a metaphor for, for also, I think like our well being, (laughs) right. Where we are constantly renegotiating the tools that we're given, the space that we're given, what's appropriate and what's acceptable and also what we need to survive. Mm-hmm. And we find those scraps or we find we find a way, just like water always finds a way. Mm-hmm. And I'm really curious what your sort of entry to your practice, you are a Reiki practitioner amongst other things. What was your entryway to that? Mm, great question. I mean, I kind of say that my spiritual, like quote unquote, spiritual journey began about 10 years ago. And I pretty much started the same way that a lot of people do, which is like not really having any rootedness in my own culture. And there's a lot of reasons Mm -hmm. for why that is, you know, specific to my family history. But I 
yeah, was into all of the things, you know, I was into yoga and crystals and tarot and astrology and, you know, just every little thing that I could like find any book that I could find at half price books, which has a very Mm -hmm. specific like demographic of like these books (laughs) that were written in like the eighties by like these white people that, you know, uses very specific language, is painting a very specific picture. And that's really how I got my start. You know, there's also part of me that says that, you know, that was like the intellectualizing of my spirituality, when in reality, I was very privileged to have a dad who like, took me out to the river almost every day. And so, you know, we lived, I'm originally from Everett, Washington, which is like 20 miles north of Seattle, would be Mm. considered Snohomish land and Tulalip land. But so the river was like maybe a half an hour drive from where we lived. We would also go to the beach a lot. And when I say every day, it was like almost every day we would go hunting or like go fishing. And, you know, it's interesting because I really like to talk about that because, you know, being mixed race is really complex. And there are a lot of things that my mother's side, my mother's lineage, that we were disconnected from due to colonization, due to war, that my dad really, you know, I wouldn't have a connection. I would never have held like certain ancestral foods if it wasn't for him. And so, you know, that aspect of my spirituality has always been there, even in the moments where like, I didn't want to be out on a boat for like eight hours (laughs) (laughs) at the age of like eight, you know? (laughs) So, yeah. And it took me a long time to really see like my connection to the land and this thing that we call spirituality as being connected and bringing, you know, being that bridge between those worlds. I know communities see those things as absolutely intertwined, but as somebody who grew up in a very white, like white environment, very Americanized, you know, those things are completely really separate. So it took a really long time to undo that conditioning. And I didn't start practicing Reiki until about eight years ago. I got my first, you know, went through my trainings and everything. And, you know, that was really interesting within itself. And I always like to say, like, I knew that the moment that I found energy work, that that was what I was meant to do for my life. Like, That was my life's path and how participating in these Reiki trainings through these white folks, you know, it's the same Reiki training that everybody has where it's like a weekend workshop sort of thing, really like quieted that initial spark that I had, you know, that initial like longing that I had to connect with this practice and, you know, I didn't really know how to put to words what exactly was going on there, but just feeling like, you know, retrospectively thinking, you know, I I think I was expecting to be reconnected with parts of my lineage only to find, you know, that 
this thing that I was being taught was really just this extremely extractive, reprocessed, rebranded version of what this traditional practices, as well as like the outright erasure of that cultural container through which Reiki emerged. And so it took me quite some time to like you know, I began studying more about Japanese culture and history specifically and, you know, our worldviews, our religious practices. And yeah, I mean, that's always been a really complicated thing because my mother and my grandmother, when they immigrated here, my grandmother ended up marrying like a U.S. soldier and you know, they weren't really, they weren't allowed to speak Japanese in the house. Wow. Yeah. And that's not very uncommon for like Japanese war brides and like their children, (sighs) you know, there's a lot of really weird things that I didn't really understand until much later. Like I didn't know that my grandma, my grandfather like has kept my grandmother from learning how to read (gasps) for like, however long she's been here, like 70 years, you know, she doesn't know how to drive a car, you know, like things like this. It's like, part of it is, you know, just obviously outright like misogyny and racism. But then also it's like, there are like these weird cultural mores that, you know, come from not only that generation, but also in Japan. And it's just, it's very dark, sticky, weird things, you know, super complex and, and yeah, Yeah. nuanced. And there's not one, one answer or one through line, it seems. Yeah. And I think, you know, that complexity just kind of increased when, you know, I started like a few years ago, kind of thinking back on all these like things that my grandmother told me when I was really little and just really like, oh, I think I'm Ainu and trying to really, I mean, that was a really big process and has been a really big process too. And just adds so much more complexity to like what it means to be quote unquote Japanese American, seen as Japanese American, and also assuming the identity of Japanese American when in fact, like my grandmother is Ainu and how, you know, historically I knew people have had to wear the mask of being Japanese for safety Mm. to escape what was essentially, you know, systematic physical and cultural genocide in Japan. And then having to come here and like assume the identity of being Japanese, you know, I can't really imagine and, and haven't really been able to really you know, I'm just beginning that journey of unpacking what that means and and reconnecting with that part of myself, which has also like hasn't been the safest thing for me to do. So yeah, it's all very, it's quite a complex and nuanced soup. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Thank you for sharing all of that. I can only imagine just epigenetically the Mm -hmm. information that your DNA carries Mm -hmm. as well as like spiritually, you know, so often we're like, Oh yeah, these are spiritual wounds or past life wounds that people carry with them or families or lineages carry with them. Mm -hmm. And also like epigenetically, there's a lot there too. And we can't ignore Mm -hmm. either. And I I also think that like this level of complexity Mm -hmm. 
scares people off from going deeper. And they kind of say, they throw up their hands and they're like, well, I guess I can't, I don't know, or I guess I can't do anything, or this is too complex, or I don't know how to make my mind up around this thing. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to leave it, you know? And I think that that's a problem (laughs) because life is complex, you know, life is not black or white. There's not one right answer, one right way to do things. Like, we are human and there are things that we inherited that we don't necessarily want, but guess what? We, we, we inherited them. They're our birth right now and we have to muddle our way through them. And I find that to be, I think this is something, especially in the healing practitioner space that we need to face head on mm-hmm. as opposed to just ignore and pretend it doesn't exist or to face it and to sort of run away from it, to, to sort of throw up our hands again and say, well, I give up. I guess I just won't practice mm-hmm. anymore, you know, or I guess I just, I guess I can't do anything. Yeah. So I, I don't do this. That doesn't, if anything, that doesn't feel like the right answer. Not that there's a black and white answer yeah. of yes or wrong or right, but that doesn't exactly feel right. right. You know what totally. I mean? And I just think that, you know, something that I've talked about with my students is that I've never felt more connected to my ancestors when than when I've been like inconsolably in tears and like really actually feeling their pain for the first time. Like that mm. pain that I felt when I, I don't know, when I started acknowledging these parts of my personal lineage was immense. It was really big. And, you know, it is, it does speak to that epigenetic connection. Something that I really, you know, try to talk a lot about is like just trying to get back to our bodies, trying to really focus Mm -hmm. on these earth-based practices and not escaping into like 5D or like whatever ascension rhetoric, Right. you know, even the past life thing, you know, I, I don't really know, you know, I don't really have uh, informed enough opinion about the whole past life thing. I mean, I know what, what I knew like cosmology says about past lives and what I've intuitively thought and how that has been the same. But as Mm. far as like these past lives all around the world and that we carry, you know, so much, it's like, no, I, I, you know, I acknowledge that that can be an experience for some, but, you know, acknowledging what's in my body is really what's important to me, but that, you know, my ancestors would not have given me the gift of pain if they didn't think that it was going to change me. You know, if they didn't Mm -hmm. think that it was going to be the thing that allows me to feel them for the first time and really, you know, embody them and hold space for them in my body. You know, holding space for that pain is how we hold space for our ancestors. And of course, there are a lot of considerations around that type of work, particularly for folks who hold a lot of trauma in their body from this lifetime, that that can be a very unsafe place. There are a lot of boundaries that need to be in place in order to do that work. But I agree with you in observation of the amount of, you know, one, I wouldn't really call it apathy, but just, you know, we as people, and I will just say this from a Western perspective, having grown grown up in the U.S., we are very reluctant to taking responsibility for ourselves. 
we are so ready and like trained and conditioned to give our power to, over to others. And because mm-hmm. of how the education system is set up, we are conditioned to seek structure only through others, you know, and we think that the only pathway to, you know, anything is like having, you know, these teachers who teach in a very specific way because we're afraid, you know, we're afraid of the challenges that it will take, the actual work that it will take, us having to really, you know, be responsible for ourselves and have agency over our lives and like step into our power to create our own path. This isn't to say that people don't need guides. You know, we all need guides. We all need elders. We all need people who can help shine a light on our path. But, you know, I I find that a lot of people really, they want so much, like they want you to walk, to walk them through it so much. And so like, Yeah, having to release that attachment to the ways in which we've been allowed to navigate through life that way is really can be very challenging, especially in spirituality. It's very paternalistic, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That like someone knows better than us. There's always someone who knows better than me about me. And it's comforting, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. right? Because because okay, I can look for someone else to the an- I can look for the answer somewhere else beyond me. Yeah. I think we actually see this a lot on social media, mm-hmm. where when we have a major global event or yeah. something insane happened in the United States, which seems to be yeah, happening uh, every week, the first place people turn is social media, Twitter, Instagram. What's my favorite activist? Who's saying what? Instead of just like, whoa, 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 take a breath. Mm-hmm. How does this make you feel? Yeah. Are you processing this yourself? Yeah. What are your first thoughts? Okay, just notice them. Mm-hmm. What are the next thoughts that come mm-hmm. up? Like, are you doing your own research? We're so quick to be in response, mm-hmm. that like sense of urgency to have the right answer and to look to the person who does have the right answer. Mm-hmm. And that decimates any space that even people who are lead, who are leaders, right? Leaders like you mm-hmm. are allowed to have for themselves to have their own personal experience. Yeah. And that just seems like a recipe for like <laughs> just not well-being okay. for everyone. Totally. I completely agree. Well, and it's so funny because so I just like went on a huge rant yesterday about my son's <laughs> school and mm. essentially like have had multiple conversations with them about the lack of curriculum around indigenous and black communities. They ended and that's been like months, like since the very beginning, you know, of this year. Yeah. And So they had another assignment last week that I was like, okay, this is it. Like I'm writing a really long direct email now. And, you know, when we did parent teacher conferences, like they essentially wanted me to write curriculum for them about like indigenous people, specifically like Coast Salish, you know, tribes within the Puget Sound. And it's, you know, my, my roommate Priya was just like, Hmm, that seems like a really easy way for them to just like not do the work themselves. Like asking you to do it for them. And I think that that's really true. It's, you know, it's exactly what happens in social media and you're right. Like, just like what you said about like 
how that kind of takes away from people who do hold positions of leadership or like have more visibility, how that can really shape how we engage with our community and with ourselves, you know, particularly over the last couple of months with, you know, these campaigns to stop Asian hate, I've been relatively silent and that's been really, you know, a decision that I've made through great inner conflict because Mm. I just, I don't see how, I don't know, there's just a lot of problematic aspects to some, you know, to how we engage with like, mm, trauma like this, you know, especially Mm -hmm. on social media and how, you know, somebody can feel like they aren't quote unquote doing the work when they aren't quote unquote showing up, you know, on social Mm -hmm. media. And so, yeah, it's, it's a lot of space to, to navigate and to hold for sure. It's so, it makes me really not sad, but it makes me think about all of the all of the incredible people out there like you, like so many members of our community who we want to elevate voices, Mm -hmm. right? Like we should be elevating Mm -hmm. individuals' voices, not just influencers, Mm -hmm. not just people who Mm -hmm. are already in positions of power, Mm -hmm. not just corporations or, you know, government officials. And how the way that we're treating these traumatic events and the Mm. necessity to respond immediately and have the perfect answer prevents, scares people away. Mm. Right. And I think that I've talked to enough people who have said, you know, I just don't even, I'm just too scared to have like a social presence or I'm just, I'm too scared to talk because like, I can't be, I don't know how I feel about every single thing that happens in the world all the time. And I feel like I have to, I have to, in order to be seen. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think that in order to be seen and acknowledged, we have to be like these concrete, like completely fully formed individuals. Like if anything, I want to see, I want to see less of that. I want to see more like goopy people who are not goopy, but like, you know, people who are, who are still like, who are like an amoeba who are changing and evolving constantly and like owning it and who say, you know, this is what I'm grappling with and it's really confusing and I don't actually know the answer. And I've, I've actually seen you do this on Instagram when you talk about Reiki and you talk about your practices, you're like, this is what I'm, I don't know. This is what I think right now, but I don't, I don't know. And I so admire that. I think it's such a G move. (laughs) Was it, is that like in your nature or is that something that you've had to sort of like Mm -hmm. cultivate in yourself? Well, you know, I think that I am a Scorpio, so that... Nice. I'm a Scorpio moon, so I feel Perfect. You. So <laughs> there's like a lot of like transformation, death, rebirth that always happens. However, mm. I would say that I'm like incredibly intentional about the way that I represent myself or present myself rather to my students, to my community to say like, hey... You know, you know, that thing that I said, like a couple months ago, or this word that I've been using that we've all been using, here's like, I've been doing some reading and some studying and here are my thoughts now. I think that a lot of the time, you know, we dehumanize people that we look up to because we We want them to have all of the answers. We want to put them on a pedestal and 
through doing that, we deny them the right of like flexibility, of growth, of change. We deny them the right to make mistakes and like to learn Mm -hmm. from those mistakes to, you know, especially when it comes to like, quote unquote, you know, capital D dialogue, which I think, you know, social media can and cannot be a great place to do that. That I just really, as somebody who seeks very consistently and deeply to decondition like authoritarianism from my, the way that I teach is about peeling back that veil and really wanting to just have a more egalitarian, like communal structure within, you know, within my teaching community, the students that I, that I work with, but then also, you know, Instagram specifically, because that's pretty much the only one that I'm really on. Yeah. And I would say that it has not always been easy for me to do that. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, the other side of that coin of as far as like being a Scorpio goes, and I say this because like, I really am like so Scorpio and I don't, you know, it's like, I love astrology, but I don't live by it, but it just so happens that I'm like the most Scorpio person that there could be. And that, that is to say that like, when I feel like I have conviction around something, I am very intense about it. And like, I feel like I'm in the most integrity with my words and that in the past, it's been a lot harder to feel safe to like make those types of choices. Like, do I admit that I was wrong here? Mm. And I just think that generally speaking, we need to have more representation. Everyone needs to have more representation around when we commit harm, how to, you know, resolve that conflict in like, in a good way, you know, I've talked about this before in other spaces, but just if we want to abolish the prison system, we need to be really implementing more restorative ways of, and like nonviolent communication within our own lives, you know, Mm -hmm. and especially like on social media, because that seems to be where people just feel the most free to really say whatever the heck they want and not really know the person that they're talking about, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Abolition is radical love. Mm-hmm. It It is mm-hmm. seeing and holding the vision that the person who has so wronged you as an individual or society has the potential to yeah. change and can Absolutely. change. And that is, I think we like often lose the forest for the trees mm-hmm. in this time of a reckoning, which we yes. should, we, we need it. Right. But also, We can't out of one side of our mouth say that we're for abolition and out of the other Mm -hmm. side of our mouth be so willing to tear people down for a singular mistake or even a lot of mistakes that they've made Mm -hmm. and sort of rue their demise. Mm -hmm. That's not, unfortunately, like that would be a lot easier, I think. Oh my gosh, that's so true. And I think like (laughs) when I started my like course. So I've been practicing Reiki for eight years, but I've only been teaching since like the fall. And really like January was when I had my very first like cohort of students. And I like really spent a lot of time thinking about how I was going to structure that space so that it was more egalitarian and less authoritarian, that I was really doing my best to dismantle hierarchy between teacher and student. Mm. And 
the first few classes, I was like, wow, this is why being a dictator <laughs> is so much easier because it's so fucking yeah, hard. Because this it's is so really hard. hard. <laughs> like this is really hard. Like, you know, trying to meet everyone's needs and like just engaging in an educational, like liberatory space in this way, like I will be very open when I say that I, after those first few classes, I was like, wow, I was so ambitious about what I wanted to, how I wanted to relate with my students that I wasn't even really sure. There were moments where I wasn't sure if I had what it took to actually facilitate that level of sovereignty and that level of agency among, you know, a pretty large community of of students. Because yeah, like, creating a container in which people feel like they have agency and sovereignty and actually continuing to be in community, you know, with those things in mind is so hard. It is very hard (laughs) or at least new. Like I want to say, I don't want to say that it's really hard because I think, you know, somewhere down the line, it will be really easy. I would love to be able Mm. to be able to hold space or be in a community in which sovereignty and agency are easy, you know, and we are all, Mm. you know, collectively working towards that goal and relating to each other from that space. But I think the transition from how we are conditioned to that place and being the person Mm. that's kind of helping shepherd that transition, that part is hard. (laughs) Totally. Because you're, you're sort of like on the threshold standing with one foot in one world and one foot in the other, because as like a leader, right. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to communal learning or taking the individual out of it, right. Which is like capitalism is individualistic and other forms are more communal. Mm -hmm. It's really hard because you're also still the leader. So, so but, but also in community, Mm -hmm. no one's technically the leader. Mm -hmm. And so how can we, or when you're teaching in a communal way, so how can I hold space and be, how do we do yeah. that? Because you're like trying to lead, lead by modeling mm-hmm. and it can be really, really tough. And also when you're getting paid for it, yeah. that's totally. another There's thing like of that, like, okay. That distribution of power as well. <laughs> yeah. And so it's complex. I totally hear you on that. And yeah, I hope, I think actually it's quite simple it doesn't mean it's easy mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it doesn't mean it comes naturally to us. And we're also fighting against the muscle memory of paternalistic structures and capitalist structures and individualist structures mm-hmm. that surround us and are reinforced every single day. It's a lot to break out of that, just like any muscle memory, you know, like I was a professional dancer for 25 years of my life. And so my toes point outwards, Mm -hmm. right? Because I was always in first position, ballet first position. And my hips and my knees, and it was not good for my body. Mm -hmm. So getting back to my toes pointing forward, although it's like the most natural thing in the world, if we think about how the femur sits in the leg socket, that it's just organically, that's how your body is made to work. But it was so hard for me to get back to that sort sort of organic movement pattern. Mm-hmm. All my muscle memory was saying, do the opposite, even though it was painful and problematic. And I looked stupid walking down the street, <laughs> looked really, really funny wearing heels. And I think that that's kind of, I don't know, feels like a metaphor for just like being right now, right? We it's are a really good metaphor. Absolutely. <laughs> Something, and I think, you know, part of 
the joy of like kind of holding this role within like the community is that, you know, I've been able to be in community with a lot of really great practitioners and other teachers. And I work a lot with Zell Amanzi, who is at Rest and Power Yoga Reiki. Mm, Yeah, I follow Zell. Yes. Yeah. So something that we talk about is how, you know, that we're kind of, you know, we're holding space. We want to hold space as teachers. And there's this tension between these very masculine ways of teaching that are how like the traditions that we come from, how those traditions are really held and supported in that, you know, for them, yoga is like, Every day at the very same time in the morning. Oh, you know. yeah. Yoga is no joke. Right. Like Absolutely. OG yoga, yeah. not the way that we teach it here. Yeah. It's like scary. It's kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like a, a little abusive a and, of, you know, mm-hmm, a lot of structure in that way and rigidity too. And I would say that like, you know, coming from the lineages that I come from as far as like Japanese I can't speak for like Reiki specifically because I was not there or like, nor are there videos of how, you know, Reiki teachers back in like the 1890s, 1900s, like would practice. But I can only imagine like the rigidity that we see represented through like martial arts and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for me, it's kind of like, there is some, while I do see or observe that as kind of being a, a hyper focus on that masculine energy, that rigidity and that structure. I do see how being so soft is sometimes not really what my students need. That sometimes I need to say, hey, if you want to become a healer, you need to practice every day, you know, mm-hmm. regardless of how you feel. And really in when you don't feel like doing it is when you need to be doing it the most, because then you're able to witness yourself, you know, and something that Zell said was that when we do it every day, we really, we start to become aware of our attachments and what things are keeping us from our practice, which I think is absolutely true. Mm. And so, you know, in what ways do we kind of, I don't want to be like, you know, to kind of honor the amazing trope of like Mr. Miyagi. You know, I don't necessarily want to be Mr. Miyagi, but I also want to hold my students accountable Mm -hmm. and really help support that process of alchemizing pure, like raw desire to do something with like Mm -hmm. what is innately and theirs, you know, what is innately theirs, the heart of their spiritual practice so that, you know, that's what they show up with every day when they go see a client, really helping them understand their own energy, which is really important when we are working with clients and stuff like that. Yeah. It's a balance. Yeah. I'm an Italian witch. Mm. I buried the lead on that, but I, so I practice. And one thing that one of my teachers said that sticks with me so, I think about it all the time now, is that the real magic is in the mundane. And anyone out there who needs all these smoke and mirrors Mm. and intense ceremony in order to access their magic or their spirituality or their healing... She's like run in the opposite direction. That's not that's not what you need. Yeah. And that remind that's to me that's what daily practice is, right? Mm-hmm. It's like 
where is the magic in going out to the garden and cutting the herbs or watering them? You know, where is the magic in washing your dishes? Where that's and that's where spirit comes in, or at least for me, like that's where magic does happen. That's where intuition is like firing Mm -hmm. so loudly Mm -hmm. is in the normal stuff. Mm -hmm. When I'm like cleaning my house, it's not necessarily when I'm, you know, in front of my altar or putting together something that feels very potent and ritualistic. It's Mm -hmm. It's those like other, it's, it's there all the time. Yeah. Totally. And I think that we, you know, wellness has been commodified and spirituality has been commodified so much to be outside of mm-hmm. us and to be something yes. that you have to have some sp- special ceremony. You have to, you know, go and get Reiki attuned mm-hmm. and have your practitioner have it be this huge thing in order to open up these, these channels for you. Mm-hmm which I, you would know so much better than I would if that's true or not. But also we have all this innate healing power within us all the time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that there's some, some through line to what we've been talking about, about out looking outside and that sort of paternalistic view yeah. of looking for the answer for someone else, looking for the activation. Oh, now you're, now you can do the thing where like, right. but it's always with us. It's, it's here all the time. I don't need to hold a special crystal mm-hmm. in order to, to gain access. Like I've always had access. I completely, I completely agree that we all have these innate abilities, these innate gifts. And I think, you know, the thing that I really try to talk with my students about is that everybody has these things, you know, we don't Mm. need the attunement or whatever. However, dedication and practice, you know, that it takes time to cultivate that power. It's one thing mm-hmm. if we are given that power, but you know, power really isn't given. Power is cultivated and we all have like the roots or the seed of the ability to do Reiki, do magic, do witchcraft, engage in these really, you know, in a magical world, in a magical reality. But if we don't, you know, take time to out of our day to just like spend a few minutes with our intuition. You know, even spending like five minutes with our intuition and in whatever way that that means for for you, then of course, like we will want to find a teacher who can give us intuition, but then that teacher is going to tell us, I can't give you anything. You have to work for it every single day. Mm. And yeah, that that that's a huge, and I think that is a really big myth that capitalism and like the new age spirituality industry wants to, wants to sell us, you know, Mm -hmm. that we have to go through these hoops and jumps or whatever to be spiritual and how, you know, that has really, that really impacted me when I was younger. Like I didn't really even know what my quote unquote spiritual identity meant if I didn't have all of these books and stones Mm. and, you know, yoga or whatever. It's like when I finally decided to release all of that is when I created space, you know, created space for my ancestors to come through, for my own intuition to come through. And, you know, that's part of kind of tying back into that agency conversation, of course, you know, and what you said Mm -hmm. about how that's like our reliance on this omnipotent father to bestow us, you know, knowledge, wisdom, and all of these things, which I think is, you know, pretty on point. (sighs) So, (laughs) so now that you're, you're really like, you have students 
that you're in relationship with, mm-hmm. how do you navigate? Because I, I know from what I've seen on Instagram, I don't know, because you actually, you could have totally changed your mind at this point since <laughs> these things yeah, were posted. Yeah. But so yeah, what is your, what's your take on, on teaching Reiki now mm-hmm. and teaching it to people who aren't of Japanese lineage mm-hmm. and having them practice? Yeah. Beautiful question. And I think a lot of people, you know, especially white folks are like, well, can I not practice Reiki now? <laughs> you know, and that has evolved even since the beginning of the course for me. How I structured the course, um, the arc of it, the journey of it has changed significantly since the beginning. Mm. And that is really because I'm starting to see my own positionality as like a quote unquote teacher to really be rooted in, or at least I want it to be rooted in, I'm holding space for your own Mm. gifts, for your own intuition. I want to give you the invitation. I want to be the finger pointing to the moon. But, you know, I do think it's important that people who, particularly like non-Japanese people who have been trained in Reiki, do see themselves as Reiki healers, whatever that might mean. I think that there is like some obligation to learning the actual history before you just decide to do your own quote unquote intuitive energy work practice. Like there is Mm -hmm. harm that has been committed that needs to be healed, you know, just in regards to like the erasure of our culture in general. So there's that aspect to it, but you know, how I choose to teach is very much giving folks, you know, that context, that history, painting a picture of what that cultural container looks like, while also really focusing on what their own gifts are, what, you know, what their ancestral lineages are and what they practiced. And that simply, like, I don't think Reiki is for everyone. I just don't. Mm -hmm. And I think that people want to be able to just like take this weekend workshop to like add another certification onto their stack of certifications. And like that hurts, you know, as somebody who sees palm healing specifically as like my life's path and that I Mm -hmm. see other people who that has always been their path, regardless of whether or not they're Japanese. I want to work with those people. You know, I want to work with those people who have been called to heal with their hands for, you know, their whole lives and don't just mm-hmm. see this as like something extra to add on to their intuitive practice. I would say that, yes, palm healing can be and is for everyone, but there is a distinction between those who want to just do it for themselves and their friends and family and those who want to assume the role of a community healer. And the level of obligation and responsibility that, you know, goes to those individuals who want to do that. And I think that there are people who are called to kind of take that role specifically as a palm healer within the community. Those are the folks that I really want to work with and that it takes time. It takes time to really see if that's who you are, you know, if that's what you want. And so, you know, I'm transitioning from like a three month long structure to, which was like, which is like 12 weeks, every week meeting, very intense. I have Mm. really asked my students to do so much. And so Mm. we're transitioning to a year long structure for that, like integration. And then also 
after that, we'll continue to have like monthly practitioner councils, essentially. So all of my students can, you know, be in, we can all be in community with each other. And I think the last aspect of that, that I just want to touch on is that something that I wrote recently about is how I felt like I wasn't doing my due diligence as a teacher if I didn't share like the most intimate aspects of my practice and feeling like I wasn't quote unquote authentic enough if I didn't share like the most authentic parts of my practice, how I Mm -hmm. felt obligated to give that to my students because they paid me money, Mm. you know, and how, you know, it really was a really great gift. Like speaking with one of my students Lena about that very openly, like the week before I kind of decided to transition things for the course, I was just like, yeah, I just, I don't know if I meant to share some of these things with all of you, because I really want to hold space for what practices, rituals, intuitive things come up for you. If I show my students how I practice which was how I was going to structure the course before. If I show them that not only am I like not protecting like this gift that my ancestors gave me, but also, and it's not like I can just like go and ask them. They talk to me in very coded ways, Mm. like having a conversation and then like having a dream and like talking about my dream with my students. And then like, all of a sudden it hit me like, oh, I'm not supposed to share this with you guys. Great. (laughs) I feel so much relief that I like have been given this answer that I've been asking for. So there's the protection of the medicine, but also if I showed them what my practice looked like and then asked them to be intuitive, what would they intuitively go towards? Because they've been exposed to this quote-unquote authentic thing, and that's the whole point of the course is like getting to the quote-unquote traditional roots of this practice, which yes, Mm -hmm. like we do talk a lot. We talk a lot about Japanese history and culture, context, worldview, rituals, practices, but it's not the point. Like Mm -hmm. it's not the point of my practice to recreate what was happening, you know, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. The point of my practice is reconstructing what, reconstructing from, you know, while still being rooted in my Ainu lineage, my Japanese lineage, and also assuming the identity of an American who's living right now here today. And what does that mean? And, you know, what aspects of my practice are ancient and what parts of my practice are a reflection of colonization, this movement, you know, across the ocean, my, you know, positionality within the United States, all of that, you know, is, is how I want other folks to like be chewing on and really cultivating within themselves. Dude, (laughs) that was gold. You got to write a book about that (laughs) because that is true. I mean, like, Yes, we are here today. We're here. This is here. This pra- these practices are here with us today. And I almost feel like it's like to assume that these practices aren't so intelligent that right. they can't that they won't work if we do them ex- if we don't do them exactly to the letter yeah. the way that they were done mm-hmm. five hundred a thousand years mm-hmm. ago is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's to uh, it's 
<laughs> again, it's like assuming that we know better. We know the best way when like, no, it's the practice. Yeah. Like there's so much more that we can't see and we can't possibly understand or know. Yeah. And like there is innate at- intelligence here. And just like water, it always finds a way. Mm-hmm. And so we just have to be open to that. Yeah. And like, how are we not like recolonizing ourselves by just simply wanting to like get to the absolute root of like our ancestral practices, but more along the lines of like dismissing the wisdom that our body carries, you know, Mm. like I've spent a lot of time reading about Japanese practices. I've spent a little bit less time and continuing to study Ainu, you know, practices and while that is important to have that intellectual component, the truth is I'm not going to find what I'm looking for in there. It simply helps create this container through which I can place myself in. And when I place myself in that container from that moment on, it's it's important for me to kind of shut all of that out. Like, what am I supposed to be doing? What was this supposed to look like? Because that's when our bodies take over and we hold space for our bodies, our blood, you know, that carries all of this wisdom. And that's really when we get the magic, you know, that we wouldn't be able to find in any, you know, text ever. Mm -hmm. You know, there are parts of my practice that I know that have, like, I have an ancestor who visits me in my dreams and like specifically teaches me about energy healing in regards to water Mm. because elemental magic is really important for my personal practice. And just that like, I'm not going to be able to read that. If I was doing my practice by the books, first of all, the books were written by like whoever was the dominant, you know, trying to write the dominant narrative at the time, Mm -hmm. not everything's Mm going to be accurate. There's going to be so much that is erased, but also that like the essence of our ancestors, we carry that within us. And that's something Mm -hmm. that can't be conveyed through any amount of book knowledge, whatever, that literally it just takes, you just have to create space for it within your own body. Yeah. And that, those are the most powerful aspects of my practice. You know, Mm -hmm. those are the the greatest gifts that I can't, those are the things that I can't teach my students that I have to just help kind of help them find those for themselves. You're such a good teacher. I'm learning. (laughs) I'm definitely learning. It is. I mean, yeah. I'm I'm very lucky to call myself a teacher. Mm-hmm. If I go like, you know, it's like six generations back, everyone's been a teacher. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely in our blood. But what a gift. Teaching is just a way that you understand yourself is an, as another way to understand yourself more clearly and, and how to make space in the world and sense of the world. Mm-hmm. Praxis, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Well, Marika, it was so lovely to talk to you. And I could spend like three more hours just listening to your, <laughs> these like pearls of wisdom just flowing out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. And it's I actually had this really bizarre deja vu experience while you were talking when you said that power is cultivated. Mm-hmm. It's not something that we can just, you know, take uh, right before we started this conversation. I heard that. I was, I was, you know, making coffee in my, ki- I was doing the mundane. Yeah. I was making coffee in my kitchen and I heard that in my head and I 
It's like, where did that come from? Okay. And then you just said it. <laughs> so. That's so beautiful. I love that. Yeah. So maybe that's the tweetable of this of this episode. There are many, but maybe maybe we'll put that one out. Yeah. Oh, that's so wonderful. I really enjoyed talking with you and just, you know, the ability to just talk. Yeah. I love mm. that. Like you didn't have any questions or like prompts. It was just <laughs> us talking and I love that. So thank you so much for <laughs> Well, you made it easy. <laughs> And where can people find you and maybe sign up to be a student of yours in the future? Mm, so I'm on Instagram at Moonhouse Northwest, Moonhouse NW. That's also my website. I have a TikTok, but I'm like kind of getting shadow banned right now. That is also <laughs> under that like handle or whatever. Okay, we'll get everyone to follow your TikTok <laughs> so you don't so Thank you don't get you. shadow banned Thank anymore. You. <laughs> Yeah. And right now, all of my like the year long apprenticeship is application only based enrollment. And I'll be after this one, like the enrollment or application period ends on at the end of April. And then the next one will be like next year. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And people can reach cool. out to me directly to apply, which is Marika at Moonhouse Northwest. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. oh, well, thank you so much for making the time for us. All right. That's our episode. I hope that you enjoyed. You can find Marika on social media at Moonhouse Northwest. And we'll put the links to her website and to book with her and to study with her below in the show notes. But I'm so glad that you joined us today. And thank you for listening. I mean it from the bottom of my heart. And I know that my team is nodding their heads in agreement. We're just so grateful that you listen and that you share and that you tell us when you like things and that you tell us when you don't like things. And all of your feedback because that really helps us stay sharp and and keep wrestling <laughs> to use my metaphor from the beginning from the intro and that is really cool <laughs> that's really interesting that's that's being alive so thank you and if you can subscribe to the podcast rate and review all those things really help us get found by other people especially subscribing to the podcast it really really helps us it helps us bump up on the charts so when you do that we can invite even more amazing guests on because it makes us look really cool and that's our job we want to get you really amazing people that you maybe don't always hear from and I think that's it. So stay cool out there. I'll see you on the internet. Bye.